Welcome back to The Few Show, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm the co-founder of Xfusion.io and the co-host of The Few Show. I'm excited to be joined today by my guest, Nusheen Hashimi. Nusheen is the founder and CEO of January.ai, which is a seed, seed stage precision health tech company that harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to predict, prevent, postpone, or manage chronic, chronic disease. She also manages a family office that includes diverse investments in over 100 companies and venture capital funds. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I want to get right into this. I, we've done something like 160 plus interviews, and this is honestly the most exciting product that I've ever come across. And I, I'm personally interested, and I don't normally talk about my health on the show, but like, I, I think it's fair to say that I'm pre-diabetic and I'm incredibly interested. In fact, I, I was telling my wife about it. I'm like, I, I need to try this. This is very interesting. So tell us a little bit more about January uh, AI and, and what it is that you do and the audience that you serve. Absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, we're a precision health company, which means uh, we're very interested in collecting um, a variety of data on users to be able to see trends over a long period of time uh, about their health. So rather than wait until people are completely sick and symptoms start to show, at which time your options become very limited and the options, the trade-offs are not great, um, we're able to early on have see some signs of potentially things going in the wrong direction and trying to alarm people, alert people, not alarm people, just alert people to, to those things so that they can, when they have the option and the choice and the chance to actually do something about it. The example of this is um, when you have what is called glycemic dysregulation, or if you have a lot of movement in your blood sugar, um, a healthy uh, blood sugar movement for someone is that if you eat or you work out or something like that, your blood sugar will go up and then it will come down nicely in a, in a, we have a beautiful curve up and down. Okay. If you have prediabetes, um, this curve will go up and not come down so quickly. It would kind of go sideways. And if you have diabetes, it may go up way, way, way higher. So um, if you compare two people uh, with similar circumstances, having eaten similar things or having done same amount of workout in two days, Perhaps if they eat exactly the same thing, let's say French fries or chocolate covered blueberries, um, the healthy person may spike to say 140 and a person with diabetes may spike to 240 or 260, um, eating the exact same thing. So that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be that they make insulin more slowly. It could be that they don't make insulin at all and they're wearing, a, they're wearing, they're getting insulin and they're, they're trying to meet up that it could it could mean a lot of different things but essentially when your blood sugar is dysregulated meaning it doesn't go up and down beautifully as it needs to meaning you don't have the ideal amount of insulin to glucose kind of mechanism happening then over a period of time you may develop um, disease and different diseases not just diabetes but also cardiovascular disease and a range of other diseases that may come from your blood sugar not being managed very well. So our goal is to help people um, just the same way that people are wearing um, sensors on their bodies, like a heart rate monitor to see how many steps they're taking or how much they're sleeping. We're 
encouraging them to also watch their blood sugar to see what their blood sugar is doing and try to uh, use this lever of health um, to, you know, essentially use blood sugars as another lever of health. I see. You know, I, I've got to say that, there, so there's a piece that I found it on your website, machine learned prediction of glucose response for a thousand subjects. Yeah. And, and I, I was telling you, you know, off air that like, I don't normally go this deeply on products, but I, I, this is fascinating to me. And what really caught my attention is, and you, you alluded to this just now, but I think it's like page two or three, there's a PB sandwich and you, you did an analysis of like three different users that ate that sandwich. And there was significant differences in the way that they processed that. And I think we, we, we think of like, there's, um, like generic expectations that like eating X will produce Y result. And it's interesting to consider that that's not necessarily the, the case. No, there are thousands of things that go into it. Like, uh, for example, we know a lot of things that take, take up uh, glucose, for example, thinking, <laughs> um, your brain, um, you actually, a lot of glucose is kind of energy for your, for your body. So your brain takes up a lot of that energy to actually do its work. So, um, so your glucose levels can depend on, um, uh, your, how much thinking are you doing, how, um, how much fiber is in your body, what, what you're eating exactly. Cause, um, a lot of people, so for type one diabetes, generally people are making this, um, insulin to carb calculus, but, but for type two and prediabetes, um, generally you're not just eating carbs by itself, right? You don't just eat pure sugar. So you eat um, carbs with protein, uh -huh. um, fat, um, uh, fiber, water, right? So um, so your glycemic response, your blood sugar depends on that as well. So your brain, what else is in your body, what else you're eating, how much fiber is in your body at that time, how much workout you've done before, what level of activity you've had, how much sleep have you had? Um, so much of these things go into, into your blood sugar level. And it's not just that you and I are different. It's that I machine could be different from day to day, even eating the exact same thing. Um, I could wake up, eat exactly the same breakfast that I've had every day. And we, we have done these experiments where a colleague did it for nine days straight. He did the exact same thing, did the same kind of activity, and for nine straight days, he ate the same mostly in the same amount. He was, a, he's a scientist. Uh, so he measured it properly and he had nine different responses, glucose responses. So we vary um, greatly. I mean, if you really wanted to perfect this, you'd have to essentially, you know, um, decode 5 billion years of evolution. So your body is a very complex thing, but we don't need to get that precise. I think we can make some we know some things very, very well. What are the things we know? We know that some foods have more glycemic load than others. Mm -hmm. So we know that their ratio of carb to fat, protein, um, fiber, water is higher, and it's going to cause a bigger spike in your body. We know that certain, like for example, orange juice. Some people think of orange juice as a very, very healthy breakfast, um, and that's been told to us, right? Just chug, sure. chug your breakfast. Uh, but orange juice is well known to be a very high glycemic index food. But lots of other foods, you know, innocent foods like oatmeal um, that are really good, um, re usually recommended to you for cholesterol, for example. Uh -huh. 
um, can spike you greatly, especially because people load up oatmeal with a bunch of other things, or they eat fast oatmeal, for example, as opposed to eating a slow cooked oatmeal or soaked oatmeal. Um, and so people think a lot of fruit, well, they think fruits are innocent in general. Um, Weight Watchers and Noom are two companies that recommend, that are weight loss companies that recommend that you eat as much fruit and vegetables as you want. There's no, um, they're thought of as free foods essentially, but we know very well that having a bowl of watermelon before you go to sleep is not a great idea because it has very <laughs> for several reasons for several reasons but <laughs> but well a lot of people think that that's great i didn't have dinner i had i had, I had watermelon um that's not the best thing so, mm -hmm. so i think we've learned quite a few things that um through experimentation that we know to be true we know for a fact that if you uh and january contributed this to the world <clears throat> we know that if you eat something we know um, we know that if you eat something and you immediately start being active, we called it transercising four years ago. We said, even if you just walk the length of the hallway, like you length, length of the office, which is, which was only 1500 square feet. If you just walk the length of the, the office, your blood sugar would go down versus just sitting. Um, so we proved the, these things in, in the lab. And then we brought it to the world. So we do know a whole bunch of things. So you don't have to get that precise. You know, some, sometimes when we talk about precision, people say, yes, but what about this tomato grown in Sonoma versus the tomato grown in Chile? We will get there. We will get there. We will look at soil. We will get there in terms of precision. But, but today, um, we don't need to be at that precision. We just know, um, we know several things about glycemic like, load of foods. We know, we know that, you know, heightened blood sugar uh, over a long period of time is not good for you and that you want to balance your blood sugar. Um, so January takes a very health-oriented approach. I think some people are taking CGMs as a weight loss measure. That's never, ever been our, our aim. Um, we are really trying to help people um, with actionable things, as opposed to tell them, you know, drop 25 pounds or give them generic advice. We're trying to help them just slowly understand um, the impact of, that the foods have on them and what they could do about it. I, this is fascinating to me. So the process works then using a, a CGM, continuous glucose monitor that's embedded on the arm, right? Like it, in, inside your skin, monitors your, your glucose continuously. And then that's that data is sent to the AI model that then... Right. So, so basically over time, it sort of learns my habits and then I can evaluate, like I ate X on this day and it had this sort of load response. And then the next day I can adjust or like I can experiment myself with going for a walk in the office and just like, is the idea like, is the end result that you're looking for is that if I'm your ideal client profile, that I would be using this and getting better control over my blood sugar level through knowledge that's concrete in front of me. Yes. Um, I'll talk about the user journey and then I'll talk about some of the things you get out of the product. So basically you come to the website, you answer a questionnaire, you go through a telemedicine service uh, to, uh, for a doctor to determine whether you qualify to receive a CGM or not. Then you download the app, you uh, connect your heart rate monitor and your CGM. So January is a product that actually is multimodal and it does take heart rate information. So you connect both of your hardwares your heart rate monitor, let's say Apple Watch or Fitbit with your CGM. Then you start logging your food. 
and going about your life for the first four days where we actually understand and establish a baseline for you. Um, after we've done the baseline, we are able to begin to provide insights to you as far as, for example, what your predictive curves would be um, or how, how many calories are appropriate for you, um, what is a good eating window for you given where you are right now versus a fasting window, See. Um, how much fiber you're eating today, um, how many calories you're, you're having today, um, etc. The The levers that we have for encouraging you to consider in terms of new habits, perhaps that you may want to include in your daily lives. Um, one of them is, is taking a look at what foods are spiking your blood sugar and trying to eliminate those spiking foods. Eliminating them doesn't mean you don't have to eat them again, not at all. In fact, not at all. That's why we are an ML company, not to be a depriving, um, partner in your journey to say, don't eat that again, Jim. Um, so our goal is for you to look at the spiking food and look at the alternatives that we provide to you for those for those spiking foods. You can also look up and compare other foods. You can, if you cook at home, you can look up recipes that may have lower GL for, for you, for example. If you go to restaurants, you can look at alternative menu items in restaurants. If you are picking grocery items from a grocery store, you can look at lower GL alternatives to those foods that are spiking you. So that's one of the, one of the levers is, hey, what's the worst thing that I'm eating right now? And how can I hack that? Number but to your point earlier, it sounds like there's ways to mitigate that. Like, I mean, this gets into the emotional, mental health side of like totally. being overweight. It's like, you know, for better or for worse, if I feel like that I could eat X food and go walk right afterwards, it honestly may be worth it to me. Or exactly. I can eat X food with pair it with some other food. Like we're, we're all about that. options. We're all about hmm. options. So, so it's exactly that. Sometimes, you know, um, so, so the first lever is, Hey, what's spiking my blood sugar and how can I hack that? Can I hack it somehow? Meaning either I love it so much that I'm going to, um, eat it anyway and walk, or I can have half of it and eat half, eat something else for that. So I can manage the quantity or, I can eat something of the same flavor, just has a lower GI, like I'm eating Dannon blueberry yogurt, but Dannon has another blueberry yogurt um, that actually is lower GI, and January can show you that. Or for example, you're eating Quaker, eight, Quaker Oats fast oatmeal, but January can show you another oatmeal that Quaker, eight, Quaker Oats makes that is not so high GI. I see. So, First one is um, really spiking foods. The second thing is the role of activity. So helping you kind of see that. And we also can tell you counterfactually, hey, Jim, you ate this and this was your blood sugar, but it, you, if you had walked, this would have been your blood sugar. So you can kind of see that and go, oh, okay, 10 minute of walk would have meant this, 25 minute of walk would have meant that. Then the third lever is we're able to see the calories that you are taking versus the calories we think you should be taking given your level of activity and your gender, your height, weight, etc., your current situation. Mm -hmm. So you can manage your calories better. The next big lever is um, fasting. So it's intermittent fasting in connection in conjunction with calorie restriction has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity. So it's actually improving your underlying physiology. 
So we look at your eating and fasting periods. So if we see that Joe is eating during 12 hours and he's fasting during 12 hours, we slowly try to move you towards a smaller eating window. So 15 minutes a day, we'll try to move you until you get to about eating your meals in eight hours a day and yeah. fasting about 16 hours. That's kind of uh, the goal that we have for you. And the final lever that we try to use is try to get you to eat more fiber because eating more fiber, um, which is really, really criti critical to health, to all chronic conditions, is something that all Americans can do more of. Uh, right now, we're all getting about 10 grams of fiber a day. The um, recommended amount of fiber for men is 30 to 38 grams a day. And for women, 21 to 25 grams a day, mm -hmm. uh, generically speaking, you know, without height, weight, et cetera. And we are hardly, we are nowhere close to that. We are very yeah. far from our ancestral diets where people were taking 150 grams of fiber a day. Um, uh, they were consuming. So we're, we think that and there's a lot of literature around how fiber in your system uh, stunts your glucose curves. So we encourage you to take fiber. So those are the five levers that we, that we offer users to use to dial their food and activity. Why are you so passionate about this? You obviously know your stuff and it's clearly something you're passionate about. Where does that come from? I'm extremely passionate about prevention. It just, it, to me, um, I've had, um, I'm sure people have heard this story a few times, but um, my, my father was, um, uh, he had colon cancer and he was treated for that. <clears throat> and then uh, he was under the care of the oncology um, department at our local hospital for eight years. Every six months he went in and did all his tests and everything. And then he was told he had stage four prostate cancer. And I was in the room with him when, when he was told that. And I said, wait, if he was already, if he already had one cancer and he was under your care for eight years and he visited regularly, and you did all these tests, um, you didn't figure he had another cancer. And they said, oh, we don't screen for prostate cancer until you're 80. And after 80, most men have it. And so that is, that is savage to me. Let me tell you that because my, my dad had become a raw vegetarian, um, you know, in his in his forties, uh, fifties, and he was healthy for for he was healthy for everything else. But this this kind of slow thing had happened. Had he known, I think he was healthy. Of course, he had had colon cancer because he had eaten a lot of, uh, you know, who knows for all the reasons. But he he had been a meat eater, like just strictly meat, nothing else. And he had eaten meat most of his life until he got colon cancer. Uh, no, sorry, until he until he lost a, a younger brother to heart disease, and then overnight mm. he he became a raw vegetarian. So mm. I saw I saw how you could be under medical care, and yet um, you know a whole cancer could be missed all the way to fourth stage. Then uh, my mother was misdiagnosed uh, for having asthma, where she has heart disease, and so she almost died you know, several times. And so I think why we're, where my passion comes from is that I feel that um, several things are missing from our standard of care today. One is that doctors don't get educated on nutrition and, and lifestyle modification. Uh, they really get yeah. trained in disease and yeah. disease, uh, dealing with disease. And most of the cost in our healthcare goes to acute disease. Um, uh, not, not, 
I, I shouldn't say most, most of it goes to chronic care, but um, a lot, a huge amount of our um, healthcare costs go to end of life care, like last two months even um, wow. of care. So I feel like the entire investment we've made in healthcare is very back ended. And my, my obsession is to try to make it front ended. You know, let's help people um, know early on what is going to happen and let them have at least the opportunity to act on that. So I think the idea is that, oh, we don't want to worry people. We don't want to concern them. We don't want to tell them things that then they may be concerned about. Well, is that better? Uh, or is it better to let them become super sick and have to go on lots of medication? So I think we're not giving people enough credit. Um, and, I, and I think um, post-COVID, um, I think people are more interested in, in their own health. And I think we should give them a shot. We should trust them. We should give yeah. them the tools to get to know themselves extremely well, as well as possible, to have the data available to know what's happening with them. Um, and then, you know, for them to act with education. Will everyone act on the data they get? No. Some people, I have friends, I have one friend who says, if I'm going to get Alzheimer's, um, you know, I'm just going to get it. I don't care. Um, I have another friend who says, no, I'm going to take a neuropsychology test to get my baseline now. I'm going to do it every five years to see if I have cognitive decline. I'm going to learn a foreign language. I'm going to um, do all these things so that I can keep myself from cognitive decline. So some people are yeah. going to be naturally more preventative than others. But I sure. think in general, our system is waits for people to get sick before acting on their health. And I think I'm kind of obsessed with the idea that we get in front of it and find out early whether um, we are at risk for something. That includes genetic testing. That includes understanding our microbiome. That means wearing wearables and seeing how well am I sleeping? Um, it's very well understood that if we don't sleep well, so many things happen. I mean, I don't need to, you could dedicate 10 shows just to that, right? Sure. So many things, yeah. we don't produce certain Hormones, um, you know, our self-control goes down. We, we tend to crave carbs. We, you know, we, uh, I mean, so many things happen that affect our diet, affect our, um, affect getting chronic conditions over a long period of time. And so I think, um, uh, I think this idea that I feel that we have enough data today, already, today, already, we have enough data, enough ways of, of eradicating most lifestyle based chronic diseases, mm -hmm. um, but we don't do it. And so why is it that 84% of the 88 million people who have prediabetes in this country don't even know it? Yeah, that's scary. 22% of the people who have diabetes in this country don't even know it. So 90 million people in this country have diabetes or prediabetes and they don't know it. Out of 122 million people who are believed to have diabetes and prediabetes, that's that sounds like does it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So how easy how easily can we tell if somebody has diabetes? Thirty dollar test at Walmart. You can get your A one C and you can see where your A one C is. You can repeat it again another thirty dollars and three months later to see if it was a fluke. Um, you know these things don't have to be dramatic things. I think we have to just get used to slowly getting used to kind of collecting data about ourselves calmly and just kind of saying, okay, maybe that was one point, one particular day. By the way, A1C is a 90 day average. So it's not possible that you just, your A1C is just like wrong for that day. 
Um, I see. That's good to know. If you want to be sure, sure, sure. Take it again. Take another yeah. A1C test. Take, yeah. you know, throw on a CGM. See if your blood sugar is going really high up and down. You know, if you have, if you have two um, glucose levels of 200 or more, um, then, you know, you may want to talk to your doctor and, and see that you may have diabetes. Um, so I think that people can take a much larger role in their own health. I don't believe governments can make us healthy. I really don't. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, be I believe governments can do a lot of things. Um, but, but I think that, um, there is no way that anyone can care about us and for us as much as we can. And we have the tools to do it. Now the tools, some of the tools are expensive and, um, and so, um, not everyone can, you know, go out there and throw on a CGM, but I think relative to other things we spend, a CGM costs about 70 or $80, um, you know, can people throw on one CGM at one time? Yes, definitely. They can. Is it dangerous? No. The worst thing that can happen to you is skin irritation. Um, nothing really, you know, there are, there are some evidence of infections for type ones when they wear it continuously, but for for type twos and kind of intermittent wearing, it's not a problem. Do people need to wear CGMs 365 days out of the year? Absolutely not, especially with AI. Um, you can wear it after getting trained. You could just wear it intermittently. You can wear it four times a year, wear it two times a year. So if you're buying a pair of sneakers for $100, you can afford a CGM. Yeah, that's it's amazing that the technology is available and so affordable to the masses. I mean, that's really a, a blessing that previous generations didn't have access to. Um, so it's and I think we see that people are spending a larger share of the wallet um, on health. So I think post COVID people feel that health is wealth and they feel that, you know, first of all, 40% of the people who died of COVID had diabetes. Mm. So um, you, 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 know, you want to know um, if you, if you have it, you yeah. want to be ahead of that. But I think that people are more, more motivated to take care of themselves now. Um, so I think we should bank on that motivation and we should take advantage of it and give them the tools necessary for them. You know, let them, you know, we have, we spend a huge amount in healthcare. Why don't we screen people a little bit better? And why don't we, um, uh, you know, and, and we can get into other structural problems besides, you know, screening in healthcare and lack of, uh, nutrition, uh, education and, and, and medical training, um, you know, our food is also making us sick. Our food sure. lacks, um, fiber in a dramatic way. It's, you know, all the refined sugar and refined flour that we eat, um, you know, it's cheap and it's available. And a lot of people, uh, eat those things because they're inexpensive and they can't afford anything better. Yeah. Yeah. It really is fascinating. I, I, is the topic that is important to me and I would love to talk more about it. I do want to transition though into, I want to, I want to ask you a question based on your experience as an investor. And one of the things that we've been talking about just recently is the idea of passion. And I'm curious when you're evaluating entrepreneurs, founding teams, I, cause a lot of our, most of our, our guests are funded founders or soon to be funded founders. And a lot of our listeners are interested in that. So it's an, an important conversation. And I'm curious how you make decisions on, whether or not to, to, to fund a certain company, how much of that is based on the founder founding team 
their level of passion, the product itself? How do you kind of uh, analyze that? I'd say passion is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I think it's really important to have passion and to have devotion and dedication because entrepreneurship is hard. <laughs> yes, hard. you, you say that 10 times. I mean, yeah. It's dead on arrival, right? You're trying to make something that never existed before. You're, you're trying <laughs> yeah. to give life to something that is not there. So uh, I think passion is critically important. How else can you wake up and work, you know, 14 hours a day, um, dedicate yourself so much and devote yourself so much to a cause? So it's absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. I think having um, the right technical skills for what it is you're trying to do is really, really critically important. I think building a team is really critically important. Um, I think, you know, it is a, it's, um, you know, there's this great book about super founders. Um, you can't really say that, you know, the best companies have uh, multiple founders. There are cases where they've been sole founders, but certainly when there are multiple founders, um, you know, there's some, the burden is somewhat shared, but of course, um, co-founders also fight like crazy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it, it really depends, uh, can fight like crazy. Um, yeah. so I wouldn't say there's a formula, but I would say that, um, passion absolutely is important, not sufficient. I think technical skills, I think, um, having a partner or more than one partner where you can, mm. you know, stick together for a long time through the journey it would be amazing. Um, I think timing is really important, uh, right? Yeah. So I think timing is really critical. And um, we've seen over history how, you know, like the, 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 the Apple phone that you hold in your hand, there were so many iterations of that. You know, there was Newton and there was like so many different technologies came together to, to make that happen. It's such a, it's, it's such a long iterative process for so yeah. many pieces of tech. Um, got iterated on and then converged into into one. So I think timing um, is definitely one of um, you know another another factor. So, but I think passion is important. I can't imagine doing this work without passion. If you're not passionate, you know, if you don't have passion for like my passion for prevention, my passion for awaking people to their own power um, over their own health, um, to uh, you know, have agency over what happens um, to them and to self-advocate for what's good for them. Um, you know, that's what keeps you going every day. Yeah. So this would be very anecdotal, but in, in your experience as an investor and speaking with other investors uh, and just generally being close to the, the founder community, for those companies that fail, mm -hmm. are there commonalities that you see that you could point to just sort of off the top of your head? Okay, let me think about some of the companies um, that I that we've had in our portfolio that have failed. The first thing that that first one that comes to my mind is really timing. I mean, they were so 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 ahead of the market. Uh, I would okay. say by a decade. Um, okay. So this is a augmented reality company, and um, they had some really interesting technology. But the having technology is not enough. To have deployment, I mean, that is a massive, uh, you know, so yes, can you gesture? Can you do these very interesting things with, with the technology? Sure. Um, can we see the use cases? Uh, absolutely. 
you know, somebody could be, you know, uh, repairing a Boeing airplane and then with augmented reality glasses and they, they could be looking through manuals and things like that, talking to their supervisor, you know, five states over, like, are there, sure. But the deployment and the execution and the user experience and then the business models. So, <clears throat> so I think many um, too often um, companies are formed around like a cool idea. But cool ideas, as you know, everybody says, yeah, cool idea, but then it's all about execution. But you can break down the execution into many things. One, yeah. one type of execution, of course, is just the, the speed of like how fast you can build that into a product. But another one's like, how do you take it into, into market? How do you change, um, how do you change the way people are doing things today to yes. adopting your tool? We don't, we don't change quickly. You know? yeah. And we don't change yeah. quickly. So, yeah. so I think, um, and I can go on, there are many, many things, but there's, you know, technology innovation, there's business model innovation. Um, there is, um, uh, there needs to be innovation sometimes in the regulatory process uh, for these things to happen, like for electric cars to happen so much yeah. subsidies for electric. I mean, there are often we think of, <clears throat> you know, we think of a company in isolation, but actually there is quite a bit of stuff that is outside of the company that affects company success. And I think uh, just the cool widget or the cool tech is not enough for mass adoption. Yeah. I, so I'm listening. I of, sorry. So when I think of failures, I think in one case, being way ahead. Um, I think in another case, people are, you know, testing their way in. Like I remember in one company, um, they were using SEM and SEO, um, and they were getting, they were getting users, but they were, get, they weren't getting profitable users. So mm. the users were like using the product once and leaving basically. And so they had to change that. They had to pivot and go. So, Sometimes people don't pivot very quickly. They kind of, you know, but I would say there's probably a common thread. We disregard data. It's right in front of us and we don't pay attention to it. Meaning we, we see it, but we'd like to think otherwise. And I think- Why, is that, that, is that pride or why? It's, yeah, it's pride. It's, um, it's um, inertia. It's, uh, it's a lot of reasons and Sometimes, like it, like I think in my own case, like you see the data, but you know there's a DNA you're trying to change, um, and it's really hard to overcome that that DNA depending on how it was um, how it was developed. Like, uh, you know, so yeah, so I can see a company that could be, it could have that. You know, I wouldn't underestimate the power of the sort of the DNA of a company. So DNA of a company is, for example, started as a large, let's say Oracle was a large, it was always meant to be a product to run on large systems. So mm -hmm. Oracle was never able to create a little database to sit on a little PC. It, it went off to invest, the CEO invested in other companies like NetSuite and Salesforce that were addressing smaller businesses. But Oracle at large itself could not do that inside Oracle. So it spun off other ideas or gave life or participated in helping create other companies, uh, some, of, some of which they, it bought back as into the company. But um, so it's rare for a company, like I think Amazon is rare to be able to do, to like create AWS as a product, which is really for enterprises. It's for yeah. everybody. 
but also create a consumer product. Um, you know, some companies make it like that, like, um, you know, Microsoft had Windows and it had it for big enterprises, but it also created a gaming company, you know, it has an Xbox and it has, you know, so I think um, in general, the DNA of how you were created affects um, sort of your performance and the products you are about to create going forward. And it's hard to get away from that inertia and that DNA sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think of Blockbuster often. You know, I don't know if you've seen the, the the meme. There's this little guy that's tunneling underground with a pickaxe, and he's tunneling and tunneling and tunneling, and he's like this close to the the diamonds, and then he just stops and goes back the other way. It's like I, I think of this theme a lot where there's there needs to be wisdom and discernment on behalf of the founder, founding team, advisors, et cetera, to know it's like, do we keep going or do we not? Do we turn back and go the other way? It's like I mean Absolutely. Blockbuster could have pivoted. And for whatever reason, they didn't have the same vision as Netflix. And I heard that Netflix even tried to sell to Blockbuster and Blockbuster turned them away. So it's like, and I know that like, we're all susceptible to those types of mistakes, but it makes me think it's like, what is the difference in the companies, the founding teams that pivot at the right time versus the, the Blockbusters that just keep on going to their Absolutely. death? Absolutely. And just look at how many times Steve Jobs did different things. I mean, he, he built Next. He had just think about how um, he killed the iPod for the iPhone. I mean, mm. who does that? iPod was bringing in <laughs> unbelievable revenues to the world. It was a popular product. Um, he killed That's a that. great point, he actually. Had, he really had the balls to do that. He yeah. was, you know, when he left Apple, he, he uh, didn't have that much money. He put a lot of money that he had into Pixar, which became later, um, I think, upon his death, his ownership of Pixar was something like 7% of Disney you know, the greatest American corporation. So like, um, you know, just there are people who can um, make those dramatic um, decisions and, um, and, and, and most people, most people are, are drowning in inertia and sort of what is and the yesterday theory and like what they should be doing today and how they are. And it's, it's hard to do that. And it, and it's for, it is hard um, to convince people to make those dramatic changes. I, I, I tried, I tried to do it and I, and there's a lot of, you know, pushback. It's like, yeah. really, we've been doing this. Why can't we just continue to do that? Well, that's not the best thing to do right now. We should, should not be doing that. So, um, I struggle, uh, also to get people around me to kind of take these dramatic kind of changes that, that you need that's to make. Scary. And it's also the timing, right? Yeah. It's great that you're, 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 you're working on research for three years, but it's, it's go to market is what matters. And you yeah. have to, when you think of designing, for example, you're designing a nutraceutical, you're going, you know, you're optimizing for efficacy. Um, but at some point you're also going to market, you have to optimize for other things, for sure. example, the sure. cost of the product. So, so yeah, so I think, um, there's also other trends happening in terms of labor markets. The, the impact of COVID on labor market, I think is very interesting. And that's affecting people's decision making. It's rather complicated. I, I want to go back. You, you mentioned yesterday theory. What is that? I'm not familiar. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's just, uh, there, there's several of, of, of these things where um, we think that, you know, we should continue doing what we were doing before. And, there's also this, this concept, like the best days were the fifties, you know, like the, the, it was always better before. 
and I see. the past was always like much better and than it is today. And um, that's just not the case. We have a lot of problems. <laughs> yes. Well, and what, I don't, are, are you familiar with um, Morgan Husel, the writer no. over at Collective Fund or uh, Collaborative Fund? I think it is. He's exceptional, and he has a book called The Psychology of Money. Um, amazing writer, but he talks a lot about that. And the the one consistent is human behavior and psychology. This it's the same story. It's just different technology. It's different challenges, oh. but it's the same story. But we do have that that propensity to think the grass is greener or was greener or whatever, you know, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. hmm. Currently we're experiencing the great resignation, right? People are all moving. Everybody's on, everybody's on the go and grass is greener. And if you just like, just water the glass, you know, under your feet, dude, just, um, you know, it could, it could make a big difference, but, um, Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting and really interesting. What's, what's happening right now. Absolutely. I, I'm rather d- disappointed that we're coming up on time. Um, this has been fun. I do want to ask you one more question. And I'm curious if you were to go back in time and you can pick the time period, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, and, and give yourself your younger, the younger version of you advice based on what you've learned now in your, your journey as founder, as, as an investor, what would you say to yourself? Well, uh, the first thing that pops into my mind is I would have, um, not gone back to Oracle after my short stint at the Stanford Business School. So basically, um, I spent seven years at Oracle, then went to Stanford Business School for nine months in the Sloan program to get a master's degree. Returned okay. to Oracle, extremely loyal to the company, obviously. Um, I had built it. I'd worked 18-hour days for seven years. Um, I had, it was my life. Uh, the company was absolutely, utterly my life. Um, had a three-day honeymoon. I had worked every day, every day, every day, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, holidays, every day. Um, I didn't even own anything but suits. When I went to Stanford, the first day I walked into class of 47 people, the Sloan class, I was in a suit. And I was the youngest person at 29. Everyone else was in their, you know, 30s and 40s, some in 50s um, in this in this class. And uh, I had to go that weekend uh, buy clothes because I looked so ridiculous in a suit. Oh, never no, okay. So I lived a a very specific, you know, determined, dedicated, devoted life to Oracle. And um, the best thing would have been when I left Stanford, I should have immediately started a company. I wrote a business plan for a company and um, I should have just started it right then and there. Um, Why did you uh, not? I don't I don't regret it because I ended up having um, kids later in the 90s and um, that was a phenomenal journey. I would not change it for anything. I have two really incredible kids and I dedicated uh, quite a bit of my time to raising them. I made them my, my first priority for for a number of years. So I wouldn't have changed that with anything. But um, uh, yeah, I didn't do it because I was devoted to going back to Oracle. It was kind of my, and that, you know, if I were to turn time back, I would have just gone off uh, then, um, you know, were you, when, were you afraid to jump off? Was it a, the, the security that you felt at Oracle? Uh, no, I, I think I was too, I was too dedicated. I think I had, I had an, uh, imbalanced, uh, relationship okay. <laughs> with the company. I'd given too much of my life to the company. You should talk to other people that have worked in companies, say seven to 10 years. I you, see. you get into almost an unhealthy relationship with it. We are so devoted to it that like anyone who's worked in a company for about seven years, you it it takes you so long to leave. Like it takes years to actually depart huh. 
uh, because you because you built it from the beginning with your own two hands. You know, just think about it. 18 hours a day, average, sometimes much more, seven years in a row. Oh, that's a lot. 365 days out of the year. Just think about it. Yeah. Think about not going to the doctor, not going out to birthday parties, no games, no night. Just think about that. Mm. And so it, it took me a while to do that. Um, and... Um, I think that that's probably the, the only thing I would have I would have done differently if I were to go back. Um, I would have I would have jumped, but I was so devoted. I was like, oh, I need to go back, and I you know I need to you know it was just a nine month little stint. I should get back to <laughs> back to building the company. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun and very informative, Nishina. I really appreciate it. For anybody that wants to check out uh, January, the website is January.ai. Uh, and I highly encourage people to do that. I'm going to sign up. Um, and that's not something I say every show. Like I'm passionately interested about this topic as well. Uh, thank you for sharing. What's the best way for people to reach out if they want to say hello or, or learn more in general? Best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. I'm mm. Yushin Hashemi on LinkedIn. Um, okay. You can visit January.ai. You can also visit um, our foundation, thehandfoundation.org. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite accessible. Real, real quick, I know we're out of time, but tell us real quick what the Hand Foundation is. Hand Foundation um, is a private family foundation and uh, with about $22 million in assets, we give away about a million dollars a year or more. Mm, wow. um, we are focused on helping um, first uh, prevention of child sexual abuse. Um, we're also interested in um, advocacy and debate. We help um, victims of crises. This is something we added in the last three years. We always worked on very, very long-term causes. And in the last three years, we've added uh, crisis, you know, just because of so much, um, so many things that happen in the world in terms of, um, you know, floods and like so many kind of uh, natural disasters that happen. So we have kind of changed some of our focus to just giving people immediate help. Um, uh, we support uh, education, entrepreneurship, um, uh, and so you can learn more at the foundation.org. We're very excited about the work that we do. We've done some really, um, interesting work in the past. I encourage people to give to child sexual abuse prevention because it's a neglected, it's really, um, a neglected area of philanthropy. Um, in spite of our very small size as a foundation, we're one of the key donors to child sexual prevention, which is really hard to believe because it's so prevalent. It's one out of four girls, one out of six boys. Um, is sexually abused in, in America before they're 18. So I really encourage people to consider consider that. We all know someone who's been there. So thank you for sharing that. I I want to talk to you more about this offline. I I got chills as you were saying that. I I was a sex crimes against children detective for five years. So I worked for the police department and the DA's office. Um, and it's awful. And I it, it's we can talk more off off air. But uh, this is something I'm very passionate about. And and I have plans to start a nonprofit surrounding helping law enforcement have the resources to work these types of cases from an education perspective and, and bringing in passion as well. Like that's a major issue is that um, there's a lack of passion for a lot of people because they just don't understand this type of abuse. So, um, but thank you. Like, this is incredible. And that's, uh, let's see, handfoundation.org. The Hand Foundation, T-H-E-H-A-N-D, Foundation, The Hand Foundation. Oh, let me correct that. Got it. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we'll add that as well. Uh, thank you, Nusheen. Really appreciate thank your time you. and, and generosity. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Thank cheers. So Thanks for having me.